Greetings, Meat Ciders, and welcome to One Man's Meat Podcast. This is episode 11, and we're happy to have you with us. I'm Chris, aka Big Meaty Cool, and he's a man whose life has been made a living hell at the hands of Big Meaty Cool. He will never be the world heavyweight champion as long as Big Meaty Cool is around. Therefore, big man, he won't rest until Big Meaty Cool rests in peace. In a buried alive match, it's the Big Meaty Badass himself, Danny the Scottish Juggalo. And have you got your shovel ready, bro? I certainly have, mate, and I love that intro. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't let you down, mate, even when you're doing hosting duties. Yeah, oh, thank you very much, mate. <laughs> but yeah, that was a brilliant intro. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the One Man's Meat podcast, which is proudly part of the Unbooking the Territory family of podcasts. All of our main episodes, as well as new episodes of our latest joint spin-off, Cold Cuts, are available exclusively on the UTT podcast feed before appearing on our main feed seven days later. However, bonus shows, including our horror movie review series Disgusting Awful and Big Meaty Cool solo series Acceptable in the 90s, will appear exclusively on the main feed for this podcast. So please search in your podcast provider for One Man's Meat Podcast and subscribe to receive more of our glorious audio which is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And as always, my friends, if you're feeling particularly generous, any and all reviews placed within your providers will help increase our awareness across the podosphere. So help your brothers out, please, and thank you. And Danny, we've been having a good laugh with the Cold Cuts Project, haven't we, pal? We really have, mate, and it's something that I've totally brand new to. Um, WSX is just like, as I'm watching it, it just learn, becoming more and more addicted to it. And um, the fact that we've got, well, basically about seven episodes left, um, I'm loving it, mate, yeah. Yes, mate, me as well. So, yeah, um, it really couldn't be going better right now. So, uh Lovely, that is good to know. Uh, but guys, this is where I take a back seat for a change and we can hear the collective cheers of the meat ciders as Big Meaty Cool is going to shut his mouth for a change as Danny is in charge this week to talk about our latest topic. So brother, please tell the lads and lasses what we're going to be discussing today. So today's episode is going to be about my favourite match type um, of all time. It is something that um, came about when me and you were discussing about, um, I think it was off air when we were talking about um, our favourite matches and I happened to mention that once um, I lived in a house that had a garden in the front and I used to play with my wrestling figures in Buried Alive matches, and I would dig them in the, my mum's front garden, much to her uh, dismay. <laughs> so today, uh, we're going to be talking about the infamous Buried Alive match. Oh, nice one, mate. And um, what, what is it about this match that makes it your favourite? 
to me, it's just the rarity of it. And just like, because we've seen so little of them, they haven't been overexposed. We haven't had a pay-per-view named after them, which is which would just be terrible. <laughs> um, and it's just, um, to me, I mean, we'll get into it with the second match that we're going to be looking into of the three, but this is just so believable to me. It's like, this would really happen in a real fights because um i'm shocked it hasn't been done on a soap opera or something like that but yeah to me it's just the believability of it cool well matey uh, that all sounds very good um so do please take us on a journey into the buried alive match so for anyone who's unfamiliar with buried alive matches the buried alive match can literally change the direction of one's career the object is of the match is to throw your opponent into a six foot deep grave once he's in the wrestler must then bury his opponent with dirt and basically i'm going to be completely honest with everyone on this show i thought the object of the match before doing research of this was to put the entire um, basket of dirt to to point where you kill your opponent for the very live match but i was so wrong it's actually you just cover his body with that. So when I found that out, I was like, oh, wow. Actually, I actually had it a lot more high up in my mind than I had before this match. So, um, yeah, the Buried Alive match is definitely one to watch. And today, um, me and the great Chris Bellis are going to be looking at three matches um, out of the basically six you can count six and a half matches if you count AEW's um, effort they did last week um <laughs> we're going to be talking about uh a match from 1996 a match from 2003 and a match from 2010 three different errors so the buried alive match basically just it transcends errors which is what um i mean we even had it in attitude error but we're not going to be looking at those matches so, um, yeah, today we'll start off, uh, get right into it with The Undertaker versus Mankind from In Your House 11, Buried Alive, uh, October the 20th, 1996. What you've done, mankind. He's beating that casket with a steel pole! You have awakened the beast. Mankind, how did he get there? How did he do what he did? Who has laid silent for a long time. How did he get there? I don't believe it! The Undertaker was inadvertently hit with his own arm! I've destroyed the Undertaker! And the Undertaker, on one knee as we've seen so many, many times before. The baddest man to walk the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, no! Until now. How could the Undertaker possibly understand what has happened here? What has possessed Paul Bear? Wait just a minute! Look at this! Mankind, up from the bottom of the ring! The Undertaker! Sucked down underneath the ring! 
psychological warfare. will be the demise. The Undertaker's gone. The Undertaker's passed away. Of mankind. The Phenom is here. The Undertaker and mankind pummeling each other. For every person who says, aren't you ashamed? This resembles a prison riot. You've destroyed the Undertaker's fans. You bought them paid. I say it's about time! Mankind and the Undertaker again going at it! Mankind, I will dig your grave. Oh, Paul? I don't want to be buried alive! You're not going to! You won't have a nice day. This grave's too short for the Undertaker! I am going to bury you alive and i mean we're not going to be going move for move or anything like that but i was actually really interested to ask you um chris what did you think about the buried alive match concept as a whole before we get into this okay so i, I quite liked the idea of it um especially obviously the mid 1990s is very much my wheelhouse for my wrestling fandom so I think it was a very appropriate pay-per-view to have the first match as well, given that it was from an in-your-house event called Buried Alive. Um, but yeah, I'll be very honest, th this match came around at a time where The Undertaker was getting a little bit stale for me. I mean, I would have been about 16 years old, so... I was still a massive fan of wrestling, like I've never kind of gone off it, but... A lot of the hokey kind of characters I was getting quite annoyed with, really, and I was kind of getting a bit disillusioned with what was going on in the WWF. And then a gentleman came around that kind of pushed Mark Calloway to the very heights of his expertise in the ring, and that man was called Mick Foley, who, yeah. of course, would go on to be mankind in the wwf and i genuinely believe that if it wasn't for the mankind undertaker feud that branched out over a good few years i think we would still remember the undertaker fondly as a character but i don't think from an in-ring perspective his matches would have got the love that they do yeah very well said mate yeah they really really meshed well together and, I mean, they had the first ever Boiler Room Brawl as well. And uh, they had, mm. obviously, we can't go without mentioning their um, famous Hell in a Cell match. I mean, they just they just transcend together so, so well. And, um, yeah, so we, we'll just get straight into it, um, this uh, Buried Alive match. Um, what were your thoughts overall in it? Just basically, um, I've just got a load of notes written down. But um, did you enjoy this match? I did. So one of the things that I loved about the Buried Alive match concept, particularly with this first one in particular, is that it really played off as kind of an ultimate grudge match. So we, we see this a lot in modern wrestling where you can have two opposing people who 
develop a beef with one another and they can't wait to tear each other apart and then they get into their final grudge match and it starts with a lockup, which yeah. is one of the most baffling things in wrestling. Like if you hate each other so much that you're putting a crazy stipulation out there to put each other away once and for all, then you start with the fists and firearms. And that's what we get with this match straight away. And I love it. Like it plays to both men's strengths in that Taker is showcasing a lot of his harder hitting stuff rather than his kind of walking zombie manoeuvres, while Mankind shows Mick Foley's knack for taking punishment. So he's kind of prepared to take whatever The Undertaker throws at him if it means that he manages to get a sneaky shot in here and there. Yeah, excellently said, mate. And that's sort of wrote down the similar thoughts of, like, I love that early on in the match, both competitors try to go straight to the uh, mound of dirt because uh, even though you have to start the match in the ring, it obviously doesn't end there, so why would they waste time going in the ring, having a lock-up and things, when they could go all the way to the other side and try to throw each other in the grave? Yeah, that, I fully agree, mate, with that. Yeah, but, and that really highlights the surrounding as well, doesn't it? In that, yeah. you know, this this isn't a match that's going to finish in the ring, so why should the main portion of the match be in there, kind of get people outside, show them the surroundings, highlight what the finish of the match is all about. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the massive, the biggest fan of walk and brawls, but it really works in a match like this because you are trying to get people to focus on the fact that this match has to end outside of the ring. Yeah, that's so true, mate. And, I mean, I love the fact that um, the the setup of it is well. That's something we didn't get into, but the setup, just the over, everything in wrestling is over exaggerated. I love that they have a giant, uh, just like this mound of dirt that had to take. It looks like it took about three days to set up. Um, then they have this tombstone that is still in the WWE warehouse that I would love to have, to be honest with you. That is so detailed, and and then you just have these two little. Um, shovels that look like they were bought from B&Q <laughs> I love the fact that, that those little things um, happen but yeah um, you you described it earlier, walking brawl um, that is pretty cool as well because uh, it plays to both of these characters these two are not going to be submission specialists or anything like that so um, even though for me they do go a bit too back and forth back and forth, it does make sense in the long run and um, a lot of this is uh, Undertaker just basically trying, well, both men trying to break down each other's bodies so that they could just grab them and then just basically easily throw them into the grave. Um, to me, the crowd was really into this. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, Chris. Yeah, they were. And to be perfectly honest, I, I think it's a mixture of two things, really. First of all, the fans are seeing something new and... This is the thing, as jaded as any fan is, if you show them something that's outside of their normal wheelhouse, they're going to get behind it initially. And as well, this this whole style of match, it was a quite a bit of a sea change, really, for the WWF in 1996. Like, for me, this, this first match kind of shows a lot of the outside influences that they were drawing from the likes of... ECW, which I know sounds ridiculous when you're talking about a gimmicked match, but you've kind of got to look at what's going on around this match. Like we say, we've got the walk and brawl, we've got the use of 
foreign objects, um, chair-assisted DDTs and leg drops, you know, pile drivers onto the concrete. This is a lot of stuff that you were getting week in, week out on ECW TV locally. Um, but to mainstream fans of wrestling, this really was never-before-seen stuff. And I think that's what helps this particular first match to stand out from the crowd in that it legitimately is something different like before this you know matches were started and settled in the ring and both of your opponents were fairly standard fairly generic you look at mankind as well or mick foley the man he was just the opponent that undertaker needed at this point in his career like the first four or five years of the undertaker's wwf career he has had to deal with a lot of dross a lot of guys that are on their way out physically and from a company perspective and this is where we start to get the undertaker as a credible worker rather than an undead spectacle i mean within months of this match he gets his second world title run and i think mick foley and indeed the ecw influences of this match allowing him to broaden his repertoire they both deserve a lot of credit for that happening i think yeah, you've perfectly said, mate. And I mean, just to go for more, more Undertaker talk, um, Undertaker shows a lot of agility in this match. I mean, we talked about leg drop on the chairs, but what I was most impressed about was the fact that Undertaker would just seem to just jump out of like over the barricades uh, outside of the ring with just such ease, even from the top of the um, top of the turnbuckles at some points in this match, and it's like. Wow, but we finally get to um, just near the end of the uh, where the dirt is, and I was really impressed that both men managed to bust out a hip toss. And Undertaker's one uh, made Mick Foley land all the way down um, to the uh, the bottom of the pile of dirt, and that's something I also wrote down was um, mankind is taking a lot of um, dangerous bumps in this match, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Um... And, and again, while it's going to shorten his career, if you like, again, I think it endears him a lot to the fans in that, you know, this is a character, like I've said, that a lot of the mainstream wrestling fans won't have really seen before, or at least the WWF crowd anyway. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would have known this guy as Cactus Jack and we're getting behind him for that. But yeah, I mean, this this isn't just a match to get The Undertaker over. This is also a match to put Mick Foley in the shop window. So again, like a couple of years from now, you know, he starts his steady climb up the top of the card. And I think it's stuff like this where he's shown that he's prepared to put the work in it in order to make people look good. Um, I think it does him a lot of favours, to be honest. Yeah, fantastic, mate. And then uh, something that's not fantastic is... We basically get um, a masked man who enters, who I didn't know before doing research of this. The executioner arrives and the undertaker and um, from behind, mind you, saves mankind. The executioner and mankind just put undertaker into the grave and then a load of heels come out. Um, Goldust, Triple H, Crush. Uh, among others, and basically I love the sight of seeing Goldust with a shovel because <laughs> to me it just looks so random of like these heels. It was a lot like um, when The Undertaker got put in a casket and a load of heels came out at the Royal Rumble 1994. 
um, it was like, I mean, if you watch this in a box or in a vacuum without the backstory, you're thinking, but it made me want to go back and find out, was The Undertaker hated by all these humans? Or were they just acting on the orders of um, Mankind or Paul Beer at this point? And yeah, um, what did you think about that finish, Chris? So this was very much a trope of a lot of the Undertaker gimmick matches around this point. So we'd had a couple of casket matches, one with Yokozuna, one of which, if it wasn't with Goldust, I think it might have been with Karma. But just when it looked like the Undertaker was going to win, um, a cacophony of mid-card heels run in to kind of, you know, spoil the fun. So... I can see both sides of it. So for this match, um, I, I liked the fact that it took a massive distraction to take The Undertaker out of it. So, you know, the the referees are trying to get Taker to calm down in this match while he's burying Foley, which diverts his attention away from the fact that the execution is coming in. And then while the executioner softens him up, along come this massive group of heels in order to, you know, bury The Undertaker as quickly as they can so that he doesn't have a chance to rally back and, you know, make his own way out of the grave. So, in this instance, what I didn't like about on the casket match, I like about here because, you know, The the Undertaker still has this whole mystique of being, you know, a guy that can, like, come round in an instant. So, the fact that it's it's more a case of getting him in there as quickly as possible and burying him, even if he's not quite ready to be buried. I think it works, to be fair. Uh, like I said, this, if this was a casket match we were talking about, I would have hated the finish. But I think it works in this match, to be honest. And it is a theme that we're going to get throughout the three matches that we watch, in that it's always shenanigans that kind of prevent The Undertaker from getting what he wants here. Yeah, that is so true, mate. And... Then basically we get a uh, rest in peace chance, which I found humorous. Um, yeah, what did you think of those? I thought it was weird. I, I think I think it was a really weird chant to level towards the Undertaker, to be honest, because they're they're chanting this while he's actually getting buried. <laughs> you could understand if he was beating up Mick Foley, yeah. but no, they are they are literally saying to their hero, "Yeah, die, you bastard." <laughs> So true. <laughs> and then we get um, oh, something I'd never experienced uh, happening because I've, this is the first time I've seen this match. Um, lightning hits the grave and Undertaker's hand appears. Now, I was struggling. I was hoping you could um, help me out with this, Chris. What film were they copying? Was it one of the Freddy Krueger films where his hand appears out of the grave? I know it was something. I'll be honest, I, I was getting a lot of, like, Evil Dead vibes from that, and like even Carrie as well. There's that scene at the end of the original Carrie where um, the the friend visits the the graveside to put some flowers down, and Carrie's hand reaches out and grabs her. Um, I mean, for me, it gives off that whole like like to me, it gives off a whole this isn't over vibe because. Yeah. What, one of the things about the Buried Alive match, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to, is that the other ones that we're looking at, they kind of look at some form of rebirth of the Undertaker character or a chance for him to get some rest. Whereas um, with with this match, 
he's back at the next in your house to feud with the executioner, which is like less than two months away. So I think it's kind of, for me, I think the finish says, yeah, you've, you've cheated to put me in here. So this doesn't count. And as soon as I'm out of here, people are going to pay. Yeah. Fantastic, mate. And, um, yeah, so that was basically match one that we, we've covered. Um, I enjoyed it for it was. I mean, that was the first time I watched it. And, yeah, um, it, it's, it's something that you can't put on. I mean, we said at the top of the show, you really can't do this too often. But as a, um, I mean, you wrestling always gets credit for trying something new. And I think they nailed it with that. Did you think that, Chris? Yeah, definitely. I mean, of of the three matches that we're going to be talking about today, and to be honest, of the Buried Alive matches in general, this one is my favourite. And it isn't just to do with the fact that it's a new concept. It's also to do with the man that The Undertaker is in the ring with. Um, and I, I think it works really well. I mean, there's, there's nothing that I dislike of any of the three matches that we've watched. But of the three matches, this one is definitely my favourite. I just think that everything works so well. Um, the commentary is understated, um, especially Jerry Lawler. I think he does a fantastic job. They they focus on the match rather than just being talking heads, talking about anything else. As a horror fan, I, I kind of love The Undertaker's hand springing out of the ground with a sense of, you know, this isn't over and I'm coming back. Um, it also is quite poignant for the Mankind and Taker feud as a whole because it does get revisited. So... I just love everything about it, to be honest. I, I really yeah. do. Oh, fantastic, as you said, mate. And now you said that's your favourite match of the three. Now we're going to my favourite match. And probably my favourite match of all time, to be honest with you. Um, oh, I wow. know we've had with a lot of matches, but I, I genuinely would say to people who've never watched wrestling, if you want to see a feud, something that, I mean, Steve, our friend Steve, says it, a lot of the times and he says give me a reason to watch and this this entire feud and the match itself gave me a reason to watch because this just felt so real um probably because i've watched it so many times but i wrote down the undertaker does not feel like the undertaker here he just feels like a normal guy coming to get revenge on his boss and i know we always try to we, we want to go back to when we believed wrestling was real. With this match, I still have some some of that belief because the Undertaker's not coming out of a motorcycle. He's just showing up and he's like he's been off TV for a couple of weeks as well, heading into this. He's just showing up. He's not dyed his hair, nothing like that. He's coming in and he's just... It, I mean, this isn't a match. This is just basically um, a one-sided uh punch like just basically just a one-sided ass kicking so basically we're going to be looking at um the undertaker versus vince mcmahon from survivor series 2003 there's nothing more that i want right now in my life than to be the five-time wwe champion but you see that's never going to happen as long as vince is around the undertaker it's going to grab that biker chain he got it the title hangs in the back Lesnar retains the title. 
words came out of Vince's mouth. Because as long as I'm breathing in and breathing out, you'll never be the WWE champion. Never. Well, I guess it's time that he stops breathing in and out. Never. The day of reckoning is coming at Survivor Series. Our Father, who art in heaven. I only ask for your understanding and forgiveness for what I'm about to do. Hallowed be thy name. I've been chosen. Thy kingdom come. To slaughter the infidel. Thy will be done. To bury the Undertaker alive. It is in heaven. On Survivor Series night, I will have worked for this company for 13 years. And in those 13 years, Vince McMahon has screwed with me professionally and personally. I must follow the light. There comes a time where you have to be held accountable for your actions. Even if your name is Vince McMahon. Amen. So I know I, I got a bit long-winded because I love this match so much. I've got two pages <laughs> written on it. If, what are your thoughts on this version of Undertaker, Chris? Do you like him? Okay, mate. So um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for skipping over the Undertaker-Steve Austin Buried Alive match because it absolutely stinks. But yeah... Um, I'll be quite honest because I know this version of The Undertaker gets a lot of hate, but I quite like the American badass character in that, like you say, it kind of, it redresses The Undertaker for a modern audience at the time. But as well, I think it gives us a glimpse into Mark Calloway, the person, which... This really appealed to me in the year 2000 when this character first came along because, you know, my general fandom of wrestling at this point was like typical, you know, smarky smart ass. And I didn't want to know that, you know, this guy was an undead zombie that slept in a coffin and this, that and the other. I wanted to know about the person behind it. So this this relaunch of The Undertaker's character came at a a point for me that I'm quite happy with, whereas a lot of, um, you know, the more popular and decidedly more work podcasts out there, some of which I'm a fan with, so I'm not going to name names, but, you know, they they kind of poke fun at this version of The Undertaker's character. Um, But I liked it, and that's all that really matters. Yeah, very well said, mate. And to me, why I like this Undertaker character, I th- you said you where you was at your fan your your fandom during this time. This I was twelve years old, and this was my peak fandom, two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, this Undertaker to me, it just it doesn't feel like he's playing a character. It just feels like he's the guy. When Vince McMahon crossed him the championship at um, No Mercy the month before this, um, he made one more appearance on television and then was taken off in a storyline suspension. And from and but he did appear on vignettes and things like that. But from then on, it felt like this is Mark Calloway just coming to. He wants revenge on Vince McMahon, so we get the buried alive match stipulation. Now, there was something interesting about this. I do remember reading in Dirt Sheets um, many years after this that um, this was originally going to be Brock Lesnar versus The Undertaker in a Buried Alive match. Um, would you have liked to see that, Chris? Oh, no. 
<laughs> I, I don't. I mean, in in all honesty, I think Vince McMahon was the perfect opponent at this time. Like in in two thousand and three, and I know commentary allude to this a lot. If you just watch this as a standalone match, Vince is very much in his king of the shits persona. I mean, this is a guy that's recently not only beaten his daughter up, but also ousted her from a position as SmackDown general manager, which obviously The Undertaker being in his working class hero gimmick at the moment, he completely didn't like that fact. And I think that's what's made him, you know, Vince's primary antagonist here in all of this. So, I mean, while while I loved the Brock Lesnar heel character and what have you, I just I just don't think it was built up to the point where they needed to settle things in a buried alive match, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've totally agreed with that, mate. And um, so just before we get into the match, Taz offers his keys to victory, which, um, to be honest, I just found a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, just like Taz. Yeah, yeah, very much at this point. <laughs> I agree. Um, so on Undertaker's keys to victory, he says, Taz says, oh, those evil submissions, home field advantage match experience, which are all valid points. On Vince McMahon's um, keys to victory, he notes mental stability, invincible confidence, and avoid the hole. Which, um, yeah, these, these were just a waste of time. I thought, this is, we don't believe this is real. <laughs> I just, but as, as a 12-year-old watching this, I do remember thinking, even then, it was like, okay, just get to the match. We don't care about Taz's opinions. Mm. <laughs> I can see why this didn't last. <laughs> no, most definitely not. But, um, I mean, while our opponent doesn't quite have the same in-ring acumen as a Mick Foley, Vince really knew how to play to his strengths. And that was more... I think Vince McMahon, from an in-ring perspective, is quite an underrated storyteller in that kind of when you see a Vince McMahon match, there's a lot of close-ups to his facial expressions and a lot of kind of whatever Vince is doing to get to his opponent, it's it's all focused on that and what's going on around him. So I think that really does hide a lot of... Um, no offence to Vince, but a lot of Vince's obvious negatives in that, obviously, he he hasn't trained as a wrestler. You know, it's he, he plays one on TV sometimes, but it's not his actual job. So, again, I, I, I like this match for completely different reasons to what I enjoy the first one, in that this one is purely about the story being presented. Like, you expect the fact that if Vince McMahon is going to win this match, it's going to be through him worming out of what is going to be a quite obvious beating that he's going to get from one of his top employees. And that's what we get, isn't it? Like, Taker pretty much, you know, leaves a drop of his blood in every part of the arena, doesn't he? Yeah, a, a pool uh, of his blood everywhere. Um, all over the announce table. Um, I, I know I mentioned it before, but I just love the fact that The Undertaker has no motorcycle here. It came off more realistic. It's like, I can't, why bother making an entrance when all I know I'm going to do is beat Vince McMahon up, throw him into the hole and then just finish him forever. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Way. Um, and I, 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 I think it's one of the really good things about this type of match as well, mate, in that 
it's kind of the the buried alive match for the Undertaker is almost kind of like his version of a no holds bad thing in that while it starts as a complete you know punch and kick type of affair which it should it's because this is his ultimate grudge match like all he's focused on is putting his opponent away to the point that he doesn't have to see him again or at least for a good long while so therefore he's not going to bring his usual pomp and circumstance he is just going to make his way out there like even during the 1996 act you know this was part of you know, The Undertaker's, I will get down to the ring as slowly as humanly possible. I will turn on the lights when I feel like it and will start the match when I say so. But no, he charges down to the ring and starts giving Mick Foley a piece of his mind. And the same thing happens here. You know, like like you say, he's, he's warming up on, on his way to the ring. That's how focused he is on getting this done. And it's just that whole dynamic that it brings. It kind of kind of takes away from the persona that we know of of the Undertaker, and that's how important this match is. Yeah, fantastically said, mate. And it's it's it just goes to the fact of what you're saying. The the fact that we get one punch and Vince McMahon just it seemed like he bladed a bit too much. He almost did like a John Moxley style blade. Didn't he? Oh yeah, I mean he he did take it too far, but. Uh, it certainly looks effective, um, but it looks effective eventually, like once we start getting to the outside. But like you say, it does look like he's cut himself a bit too deep because the minute he lifts his head up, it's like he's lost two pints of blood on, on the canvas, doesn't it? It was really a bad blade job. I mean, um, I also uh, just want to mention that Michael Cole, just before this match, said, uh, hilariously, I won't do. I was going to reveal this. Um, Michael Cole says the Undertaker's career could be changed forever, and I was thinking, what about his life? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there, there was a lot of focus on the Undertaker's career, wasn't there? Yeah, they 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 seem to focus on that a lot more than, like you say, his life and what have you. In that, yeah, like. If he loses, he's he's going to stay in a in a particular lane, isn't he? So yeah, I can see the career side of it. But again, this has been built up as quite a brutal match. Like, let's face it, we we know that this isn't going to happen. But the fact that there's a digger at ringside, you know, if if Vince felt like it, it'd be like, yeah, do you know what? I'm just going to run Mark over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I love the fact that. Um... I don't know if you... Well, you, you saw this where Undertaker um, used the steel steps on Vince's ankle. That mm. was a callback to a very famous Raw moment um, that I've replayed hundreds of thousands of times of the Undertaker shattering Vince McMahon's ankle and his cell was just the same as it was in 1998. Do you remember that moment from Raw? Oh, yeah, I do. This was this was the famous um, wheelchair Vince for a couple of weeks, wasn't it, with Steve Austin? Yeah, yeah, and I love, that's one of my favourite wrestling moments of all time, just because of Vince McMahon's sale. So I love that they went back to that as a sort of like a, almost like a tribute, a callback to um, that as well. But, um, and I found this match very logical because um, the fact that The Undertaker at this point now grabs Vince McMahon, carries him on his shoulder and... um, Vince McMahon only gets the advantage by throwing dirt into the Undertaker's eyes, just like Mick Foley did in the previous um, 
encounter we discussed, I was shocked. I remember actually feeling shocked that Vince McMahon actually got him into the grave at that point. But, um, yeah, I found that was, but also very logical because you could see Vince McMahon selling. And I remember you said um, he's very underrated uh, in terms of telling the story. He told a beautiful story here. I will give Vince McMahon credit because... Um, even though he's, he's got, he's just absolutely just pouring blood all over him, and he's, he's mixing in with that dirt. He still takes the time to just sell properly. Yeah, and you can really believe whenever Vince gets the upper hand, it's always through sneaky means, and you can believe that. Like that's literally all he's going to have against the Undertaker. He's he's certainly not going to be able to match him power for power or hold for hold, is he? No, absolutely not, mate. And then the Undertaker grabs Vince McMahon, puts him into the grave, and it looks like it's all going to be over. But oh no, here comes a massive explosion, and the Undertaker doesn't get burned or anything, but he gets distracted, and out comes his brother, Kane. Yeah, and I mean, for me and for the viewers in general, this is where our match becomes an angle if it wasn't already viewed as an extended angle in the first place but when you see what it leads to and again this is where i get to the point of you know the the, the buried alive match as a means to relaunch the undertaker at some point in the future um i was all here for it um because obviously following this we get the return of the dead man in 2004 but um Yes, again, it, it plays to a lot of Vince McMahon's strengths at this point where, you know, he wasn't afraid to kind of scratch and claw to get what he wanted. So the fact that obviously he's reached out to Kane, who at this point was at the very height of his, you know, psychopath phase as a man who just recently been remasked, like it all plays in really well to what we're going to get in the next six months, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, mate. And that's one thing uh, I wrote down was I always wondered, even back then, um, why didn't The Undertaker return to get uh, revenge on Vince? Only Kane. <laughs> but, I mean, that's that's something I know you won't have the answer for. I mean, only the, I guess the wrestling bookers will. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But obviously, I mean, obviously he wanted to attack Kane in in terms of kayfabe. But yeah, but then uh, um, Kane saves Vince McMahon out of the grave. And something that um, I discussed with you last week, Chris, was WrestleMania pointed out a noticeable um, flaw that I'd never seen. No matter how many times I've watched this match, you actually see at this point The Undertaker getting a shovel and digging his way through a sort of like a cardboard box type thing and he in, where he can uh, kind of crawl out of. I'd never seen that before until this year, until about two weeks ago. Um, did you notice that? No, um, I didn't initially, but like you say, it was the point that Russell Lamia points it out in one of his videos that, yeah, you, you then start to look for it and then notice it a lot quicker. So, I mean, yeah, it is... A bit of a shame, really. I mean, obviously, you do pick up on the fact that, you know, these guys aren't actually supposed to asphyxiate themselves while they're there. But, uh, but yeah, it, it does kind of take away a bit of the mystique, sadly, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a shame because um, I always, uh, I guess some of me still w will wonder exactly how they've 
pulled this off, but I've never looked into it because I just don't want to ruin that illusion. But it's, I don't want to say that's been ruined because every um, every match is different. I mean, I don't know how they would have pulled off the Undertaker uh, pushing his fist through all that dirt in the uh, previous encounter. And I just don't want to know because life is better that way, honestly. Yeah, it is. And this is the thing, like like a, like a great podcast says, it, it used to be better. And I think when we when we stop picking and finding holes in the things that we enjoy, I think that's when we remember it for being as good as it is, you know. Yeah, definitely, mate. And then um, I, uh, Vince McMahon dumps the um, payload of dirt right into the grave and we get Vince McMahon defeating The Undertaker. Cole and Taz, to me, was in particular Cole, really sells the aftermath of this quite well. Yeah, what did you think about the commentary in this? So, uh, again, like Michael Cole does focus on the the Undertaker's career being dead and buried here, which, I mean, you're, you're going to, because literally the whole focus is on the fact that if he loses this match, Vince isn't going to, you know, allow him to be the world champion as, as long as he's around. So that does make a lot of sense. Um, but, but yeah... It, a lot of what is said on commentary from a, a storyline perspective does kind of take away a little bit of the enjoyment of the match in that, as we've said, it focuses on career rather than a person's life. But do you know what? Um, this this time in SmackDown's inception, I honestly believe, like even now, this pairing of Michael Cole and Taz, even though Taz was kind of getting progressively dafter and dafter, he was still a fantastic colour analyst. And I thought these two fed off each other really well. I mean, obviously, we get the vastly superior pairing of Michael Cole and JBL for the next four or five years uh, yeah. following 2004. But yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things that can't be taken away from the matches that we're looking at is that commentary do a really fine job. They really do. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like different themes in each bit of commentary for different eras. But like Vince and Jerry Lawler kind of look at the fact that this is a relatively new match, something they haven't seen before. And that's what they focused on based on what they've seen. And then you've got Curl and Taz that are kind of looking into the fact that The Undertaker is more of a human being with human emotions now and was literally just playing a character on TV and this is an, an extension of what he is and the fact that, yeah, he does have the ulterior motive of wanting to be able to further his career in peace without the boss getting under his feet. So that's probably why they are focusing on the career as much. And then without giving too much away into the next match, there's this whole theme running through of the fact that while Kane has had more world title reigns at this point than The Undertaker has, he's still somebody that's desperately trying to get out of his brother's shadow. So yeah. therefore, the Buried Alive match for him in the third match, which we'll get to eventually, is just as important for Kane in that he then gets to step away from that shadow as it is for The Undertaker, who's looking to, you know get his world title yeah exactly said mate. and yeah um i had a controversial take on this match um 
I thought that this match should have main evented the pay-per-view. I mean, that could be just uh, obvious bias because I love this match so much. But I thought putting Goldberg and Triple H on after such... You had um, Team Bischoff versus Team Austin, such an adrenaline dump. You had that, and then you had the Buried Life match straight after. The world title match, in my opinion, just fell flat. Um, what did you think of that, uh, play, of the placing of the match based on Survivor Series? I completely agree with you, mate. Um, this this match should have been evented. So we're, we're talking about a pay-per-view called Survivor Series. So what more points to the striving to survive than two people that are in a Buried Alive match? So looking at it from a practical perspective, you've got that. But but again, you've you've got to look at the magnitude of the people in this match as well. You've got the owner of the company versus one of his biggest servants who is now trying to do something for himself um, independently. And the boss doesn't like that because, you know, this employee has happened to go against everything that the boss currently stands for. This is your main event angle. No, nothing against Triple H, one of my absolute favourites of all time. But this whole constant need for him to have to main event pay-per-views when there were matches out there that made a lot more sense. And this isn't the first one of those. And it certainly won't be the last throughout this current era of Triple H. Um, it kind of speaks to the fact of, you know, sometimes, and a lot of companies pick up on this, sometimes... Your world title match isn't the most important match on the card. Yeah, greatly said. And, and it's just like, um, I mean, I don't think either of us are going to be uh, marked down for being the biggest Goldberg fans either. But I mean, I just, yeah, uh, it just it just fell flat to me, the world title match. And uh, I mean, you could have even had uh, Team Bischoff versus Team Austin as the main event. I mean, something, just something where the fans were genuinely invested rather than tired. Yeah, because there was a stipulation tied to that match as well, wasn't there, in that it was kind of Austin's WWF career on the line as well, wasn't it? It was, mate, yeah. And so there was much more important issues than the World Championships, in our opinions. But, totally. yeah, now we go to our third and final match, and it was the last ever match of uh, this stipulation in WWE. I had to add in WWE because <laughs> AEW just pulled a poor attempt off of it, in my opinion. Um, we go to 2010, October 2010, The Undertaker versus Kane from Bragging Rights. A shadow cast has grown ever darker. Over a decade in the making, the time for the final reckoning has arrived. Undertaker, you have been betrayed by those closest to you. The instrument of ultimate destruction is a grave for the damned. Worse than any hell. The loser, gasping for breath. Buried. 
I had never seen this match before. Um, have you seen this match before, Chris? So th this was the first time that I watched it, to be perfectly honest. So around this time, I'd had a massive electrical shortage in my house. So it had some underfloor flooding. And basically, I was also saving up for uh, Naomi and my wedding. So... Money was a bit tight, so I'd, I'd cancelled my Sky subscription at the time. So I was keeping up on the WWE through websites and what have you at work and things. But I hadn't actually watched this pay-per-view. So, yeah, going into this particular episode of One Man's Meat, this would have been my first time watching this match. Yeah, I mean, the same here. I mean, at, the, at this point, I was working as an ICT data entry officer and... Other than TNA Impact or, or just random YouTube videos, I had no interest in WWE at this point at all. Um, so I had stopped watching mid-2009 and I didn't come back till late 2011. So I completely missed, which is a shame because I've read um, and I've seen little video clips here and there of this amazing Kane World Championship run. Um, that I just missed out on, have no connection. So when I switched this on, I was actually... Not shocked, but just quite surprised that this was in the middle of a pay-per-view rather than, again, the main event, especially for the World Heavyweight Championship. Um, that quite surprised me, I will say that. Yeah, it comes in about an hour into the event. And again, I, I know I've just said about, obviously, you know, when the world title's on, on the line, it isn't necessarily the most important match. But again, I've, I've always had a problem in WWE especially because obviously they've, they've had the brand split but kind of they had a hierarchy of which world title was the most important and I'm, I'm not saying that the world title matches have to follow each other but you would you would move one slightly higher up than I mean I no no offense to the people involved in the previous match but I think this match follows on from the Dashing Ones versus the Nexus in a World Tag Team title match. And if you don't mean to tell me that your palate cleanser can't be a Divas match rather than what is quite an important, like, brother versus brother buried alive match for a world title, I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said there. I'm, I'm not saying this has to be semi-main event, but at least, you know, third match from the top, potentially, you know. Yeah, definitely, mate. And a little um, touch that he added um, that I know Sire Powell will love this is I love the fact that 
Kane entered last as champion. I did not oh, expect yeah. when I switched this on. I was thinking, oh yeah, Undertaker's coming out. Doesn't matter if he's champion or not. Um, do you have a bugbear about that too, uh, mate? I really do. So one of the things that I hate the most is, and we we got this recently. I think at Elimination Chamber, actually, um, in that you you build someone up who, no offence to Sami Zayn, I love Sami Zayn. He's an excellent worker, always has been, but that guy has got about as much chance of being the world heavyweight champion as I do. Yeah. No offence to him. He's he's the modern day Mick Foley. Yeah. Excellent worker, but. If he's going to win a world championship, it's going to be Mick Foley's first run style in that it's multiple run-ins. The legitimate opponent for the person he beats is the one that helps him to win. He holds the belt for a week, maybe two, never wins it again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So the fact that in his hometown of Montreal, he's the one that's given the big superhero welcome while Roman Reigns is in the ring. Um, I found it a bit of an insult, really. As as much as he was the hometown hero, he's not going to win that match. No, 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 fully agreed, mate. And with, like, sort of like with this match, um, as I was saying earlier, I had no connection, but no emotional attachment to this. So, or really just any attachment, because I didn't know why Paul Beerer was there. Um, I've read about how good uh, this this version of Kane's character was as the world champion. He was knocking out of the park with um, promo skills and, and just like these long um, promos that they would give music to, light, special lighting to. Um, I've seen a few on YouTube and it is something I will probably go back and watch because, um, I mean, who doesn't love an Undertaker in Kane match? And I think, I'm not 100% sure, I think this was the last time they had a match together as opponents it was yeah they they teamed together in saudi arabia or qatar or australia maybe you know somewhere yeah. like that um, okay. yeah yeah but yeah i think i think this is their their last contest as rivals yeah and, and it makes Makes a lot of sense that it's been a buried alive match. Uh, yeah, um, so we just we kind of start the match um, kind of the same way we, we do with the other two, with a lot of punching and kicking. Um, we get a jump start as well, um, and an Iway Iway brawl. Um, the brothers fight all around the arena. Undertaker pays tribute to Terry Funk by throwing uh, a few chairs in the ring. <laughs> I found that quite entertaining, <laughs> and um, yeah, there's a lot of like just a, a lot of punching and kicking. Um, but then very quickly they do go to the gravesite for the first time. Um, yeah, and I was actually shocked to see a submission uh, that Undertaker's Hell Hell's Gates applied on the mound of dirt. Um, what did you did you like that uh, finishing move of the Undertaker's? I did, and played a lot to what commentary was saying and I I thought this was really clever. So this was one of our first um, Buried Alive matches where there's two quite 
big lads involved. Like, I believe both The Undertaker and Kane at this point were billed as being legitimately over £300 in weight. And the fact that commentary pick up on the fact of as, as much as they're beating each other into submission in the ring, they need to bear in mind that the grave site where the match has to finish is quite a reasonable distance for both men to get to if they yeah. don't finish their opponent off outside the ring in that they've got to physically carry that heavier opponent to yeah. the ring. So the fact that they actually make a point of, you know, the Undertaker's trying to finish Kane off with a submission move at the gravesite so he can just drop him in and get on yeah. with it. I think commentary really helped the fans to pick up on that based on what they saw. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that as much as I love Jerry Lawler and Michael Cole, you've got Matt Stryker there, who's the guy that makes that point, and then those two pick up on it. And I'm sorry, but Matt Stryker is one of the underrated commentators. He's doing an excellent job for MLW right now. I think it's criminal that he's not involved with Impact Wrestling as a commentator or any bigger companies, but if you ever get a chance to listen to this guy's work, he could make the worst match on TV um, a lot more enjoyable, just based on what he's saying about it, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely agreed with that, mate. I mean, we're, we're both huge Matt Stryker fans, and um, the fact that he's just not on just a, like a massive promotion, it just shocks me, because he is really good. And I was very pleasantly surprised that he... Um, just popped up during this match as well so it was really cool then we get uh, a weird sort of thing i'm not sure if i will from just looking at it i, I don't think paul Bearer could take bumps at this point um but he did have a weird sort of thing with the undertaker where the undertaker just kind of rubbed his face in dirt i didn't know what the undertaker was trying to achieve did you <laughs> so um paul Bearer had literally just turned on The Undertaker in order to side with Kane again, which had kind of led to Kane winning the title. So I think it was a bit of residual from that, possibly. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And The Undertaker teases to chokeslam him, but we get the Nexus, who I was just blown away when I was watching this. I was like, Nexus coming out? What have they got to do with this? Um, But that's something I'm definitely going to look into, why they did this if they explained it in the next night on Raw. Um the Nexus attacked the Undertaker. Um Kane nails the Undertaker with a urn shot and uh, gets him into the grave. Then the Nexus um be- start burying the Undertaker. Kane uh, does his pyro talk, which I found very entertaining because I'd never seen that done outside of the ring before. And he did his little py- his um pyro t- taunt and the dirt magically appeared, buries the Undertaker. Um, I just want to say, this was the, to me, out of the three matches, this was the weakest finish. But, mm. I mean, out of the three of them, um, this was the weakest. I, I found, I would have loved if Paul Biro got into the truck and just uh, dumped the dirt on the Undertaker. Um, what did you think of this finish, Chris? So, before we do a future deep dive into the Nexus stable, um, spoiler alert for one of my future choices. The only reason I can think of at the moment before I do my research into why the Nexus were involved is that this was the Survivor Series event where 
Wade Barrett, who was the leader of the Nexus at the time, was in the main event facing Randy Orton. So all I can think of is the fact that the Nexus are all over this event for that reason. So that might play into it. Um, I think the most of what happens, if I recall correctly, is that the Nexus might turn upon SmackDown and get destroyed. But I'm I'm not 100% sure because the thing with this match going into it is that so this is The Undertaker's last non-WrestleMania appearance other than SummerSlam 2015 and his last match as a full-time performer. So until I start watching around this event, I'm not 100% sure whether or not The Undertaker does get any kind of revenge on the Nexus, to be fair. I, I, I think he kind of just disappears. So if that's the case, then this finishes a little bit of a damp squib it's kind of playing into the first match in that it took an awful lot of people to help out the undertaker's opponent in order for him to win which i think makes kane look a little bit weak when you consider that this was actually one of his better world title runs yeah definitely mate and yeah, I hope that's not the case where he just kind of disappears. But it, it would match up timeline-wise because I don't remember the... Under- obviously, you've mentioned um, WrestleMania and things, but I don't ever remember The Undertaker and the Nexus having a segment or a match. So uh. I hope that's not the case. But we'll see on our future NXT episode that I'll look forward to as well. <laughs> <laughs> so for everyone... Um, I've sent Chris um, a couple of questions that we're going to be talking about during this Buried Alive podcast and um, and a few facts as well. Um, the fact that, um, what do you think, Chris, the fact that TNA of all people have never had a Buried Alive match or something similar, especially with characters like Black Crane, Relic, Abyss, Raven, and they've never had a Buried Alive match, does that shock you? So, I'll be very honest, buddy, because obviously TNA did have a lot of, you know, darker characters, but I'm kind of glad that they didn't have a Buried Alive match, really. It's it's a match that literally could only go to a wrestling mortician, and even a character as believable as Abyss, who has got, obviously, the Monsters Ball match, he would struggle not to be seen in an unfair light by having the Buried Alive match because it would be pointed at as TNA being, you know, WWE copycats yet again. But saying all of that, I think they could have had an opportunity for a women's Buried Alive match with someone like Rosemary or Sue Young and the Undead Brides involved. And I think that would have been quite cool. So while I'm glad they didn't do it, you know, they could have had an opportunity to flip the script and maybe make a women's match out of it. Yeah, greatly said, because, yeah, I'd, I'd never thought of it like that, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it just shocked me because um, maybe they learned their lesson because of the fan backlash from um, the last rights match, which was basically a, a casket match, um, which I know TNA had uh, that one, and I don't think they had another one <laughs> again after the Fire Russo chance with a yeah. in but I know the, um, Abyss was getting a lot of comparisons uh, um, from fans to Kane and Mankind, so maybe they just wanted to stay clear of that as well. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, 
and again, I thought some of those comparisons were a bit unfair. Like, I, I could kind of see why they'd build upon the kind of height of Abyss and the monster aspect. But for me, I, I just saw him as a bigger version of Mankind in that, you know, Abyss could absorb an awful lot of punishment. And the fact that he got, you know, matches where he was allowed to showcase that in things like the Monsters Brawl, and what have you, rather than having to do it in what could potentially be quite a slow plodding affair that would do nothing for him but just kind of stigmatise him as a punch and kick competitor. I, I think it worked in his favour because, to be perfectly honest as well, one of the great things about these Buried Alive matches is that they're held in quite decent-sized arenas in that, you know, there's there's they've got the benefit of the space for the opponents to kind of get to that particular area where they need to be and also have to, you know, fight and claw to get there. Whereas this is nothing against Impact. I'm a massive TNA fan, always have been, always will be. They have got literally one of, if not the best products out there, but they do play to a lot of smaller venues. So they would have to do an awful lot of trickery to make a Buried Alive match work because literally if you're going from halfway across an arena to just six paces away uh, you know it it would it it just wouldn't work and i i know that does sound a little bit facetious on my part but seriously look at the impact zone now like the opponents are in the ring within 15 seconds and that's without any sort of editing yeah it's so true mate and this is my biggest problem with the AEW. Um, so, at the time of recording, it is Thursday night. A few weeks ago, uh, myself and a big meaty call here, um, we teased on an episode we recorded about doing a Buried Alive match. And I truly believe Tony Khan is a listener because straight after that, it wasn't two days later... AEW announces that they were having their own version of, of Buried Alive match 13 mm. years after the match we've just discussed. I mean, nobody has touched this match stipulation um, on, on a big stage um, sort of thing. I'm not sure about independence, but um, so AEW had their Buried Alive match. I watched it the morning after, and that was the only thing I watched off that paper. If you want to be going to watch it. Um, but to me, it just fell flat. Um, they didn't know. It almost was like an identity crisis. They did a lot of the... They had, you could tell Tony Khan's a fan of some of these matches because they had the the fact that um, the, uh, the the opponents started in the ring and then they made their way to the um, graveside. If you could, It was basically a mound of dirt, but it had a coffin inside and the coffin would just magically just drop when the opponents went inside of it. And I just felt it was a bit, and it was Christian Cage versus Jungle Boy, just in case anyone cares. Um, and I just felt with two characters like that, the whole angle, I'm not a fan of Death Heat at all. Um, and that is what that feud has been built on about uh, Jungle Jack Perry's um, dad dying and Christian getting Death Heat and bereavement heat and whatever that's called and so obviously it makes sense to have a match like this but to me I just I just didn't get it and it just fell flat especially the end in where uh, Jack Perry just puts um, Christian into the um, coffin and then the coffin just drops down 
presumably into the gates of hell who knows because it was never explained after so that was my sort of mini review slash rant about AEW uh, stealing our thunder about the buried alive match <laughs> but yeah I mean, Danny I mean you'll you'll know yourself when you talk about two more appropriate people as opponents to be having a buried alive match. I mean, your your first two choices are instantly Christian Cage and Jungle Boy Jack Perry. I mean, both both people speak supernatural. Both people yeah. speak obvious, muscled up, jacked up ass kickers. Both people speak feud of the year that hasn't been mentioned in months and can only be decided with a buried alive match when neither person has been in each other's faces in all this time. Mate, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, neither person involved suits the gimmick. And their lack of a feud at this point doesn't even prompt the stipulation. You could have built to a no-holds-barred loser-leaves-the-promotion stipulation in order to make more sense but instead like you say you get this really tired heat about you know jack perry's dad being dead i mean you know ooh, you know risky if if the payoff of this is that we get christian back in wwe then brilliant i'm all here for it just in time for wrestlemania as well you know get him in a a tag match with his brother sorry with his quote-unquote brother for the judgment day but if this is just yeah. purely designed as a match for the sake of it, because Tony Khan has to get all of his favourites out there so that he can masturbate in the back, it's just ridiculous, mate. Absolutely ridiculous. Well done. Well said, mate. Very well said. And just for the record, um, I offered a way for Chris to uh, watch this match and he very politely turned me down, <laughs> which shows you that he doesn't care about this promotion. <laughs> Absolutely. There's there's a lot I like about AEW. Yeah. There's even more that I hate. And the thing about this most recent pay-per-view is there's one match that I'm going to watch and I've got it to watch and I'm watching it later. It's the main event between MJF and Brian Danielson because those two men are money. But I'm telling you now, if you want me to believe in a Buried Alive match, you keep this feud on TV you don't have to do 40-minute segments week in, week out. You just need to do little things. It works with The Undertaker and Mankind. It works with The Undertaker and Vince McMahon. Even though it was rushed to an extent, it works with The Undertaker and Kane because they've got that residual from the previous match. So there's so much about the Buried Alive matches that we've talked about that makes an awful lot of sense. This AEW yeah. match was thrown out there with four days to go, am I right? Yep, four. Yeah, so what's what's that all about? You could you could set up a buried alive match. You could even set up a flipping I don't know, taped fist, broken glass Taipei death match. Whatever yep. it was, what whatever that curly permed knobhead wanted to do to fulfil his ECW fetishes, that's fine. But yeah. seriously, are you are you telling me that you're giving these two? the buried alive match when you've got a wasted faction like the house of black on your roster oh man that would have been brilliant I mean, yeah that, and they fit that character they fit that match type so well 
Yeah, that would. Oh my! What? Okay, Tony Khan, since you are a listener, listen to Chris. Put the House of Black in uh, a buried alive match now, please. <laughs> Our final question. Um, I thought of when I was on the bus uh, typing this out to Chris. I wrote, "If you could book your all-time favorite feud slash storyline to end in a buried alive match, would you? And who would it be with?" Okay, mate. So, um. I've got two all-time favourite feuds, actually, and they're, they're both from the same year in wrestling. So, my first one is Brett versus Sean in the WWF, and in all honesty, I don't think the Buried Alive match stipulation would work. Um, but one of the things that I like about their matches is, yes, there is a bit of, you know, residual hatred involved that you see in the work that they do but these are two people that put on excellent in-ring clinics at this time regardless of how they feel about each other and I think that a buried alive match would sully that because they're not those types of performers but then I started thinking about the second feud that I like which you've got this to come in the future with our good friend Sai Sausages uh, and this is also from 1997 this is Sting versus the NWO. And uh, you'll you'll come to this when you start looking at the build to Starcade 1997 and the disappointment that it is, spoiler alert, it's mostly to do with the glacier running as he reveals that he's the real leader of the NWO and that's why his debut was taking so long. Oh, sigh, I've given it away. You've got to kick me in. Um, but I... I actually like the idea of Sting putting a Buried Alive stipulation into the Starcade match in that the NWO would have to literally be dead and buried after the match by him beating Hogan in a Buried Alive stipulation. And since I'm booking it, Hogan gets told to stick his creative control up his Fu Manchu'd ass and let Sting convincingly defeat him. I like it, mate. I like it, definitely. Um... As I was um, just thinking there about a, uh, a match, I mean, The Undertaker versus, I said uh, that is my favourite match of all time, but I'm thinking my favourite feud would, um, there's so many, but I would say one of them is The Undertaker versus Mr. Kennedy from 2006, and hmm. I definitely would have loved to see a Buried Alive match, but I also wonder how, if The Undertaker went over, how would Mr. Kennedy recover from that, logically? Yeah. That's the yeah, because don't they have a last ride match? I believe there's a hearse involved or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And does Kennedy end up winning that due to shenanigans or something? No, um, The Undertaker wins that match. Um, right, okay. But the how Mr. Kennedy recovered from that, I believe he took a week or two off and then came back, and he still sort of feuded with The Undertaker, but um, nothing was mentioned of that. Uh, but they went, and then he went to feud with Batista. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't they just go into a, a tag programme? So Kennedy teams with MVP and Taker yeah. teams with Kane for a bit. Is that how they resolve it in the end? I think. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah something like that. But yeah... Uh, a buried alive match between the two would have probably been quite cool, but again, 
you you kind of get the impression that Taker would have had to lose that one as well, which which is quite sad really, because while this is his signature match, um, he's only won one, hasn't he? And that was the the tag program on SmackDown with the Rock and Sock yeah. Connection. I've only read the results of that. I believe he won that, but yeah. I've never watched that. But um, it did seem something um, that wasn't that important in regards to the rest of the three we discussed. But yeah. Um, he's lost more than he's won, for sure. Yeah, it was it was a very random TV match. I I believe um, Triple H furthers his feud with Mankind at the time by cracking him in the head with a sledgehammer, and that's what prompts the Undertaker and Big Show to win. But a, apart from that, I think the Undertaker has lost every single one of the Buried Alive matches. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mate. And. Um, this, I guess I did say that was the final question but this would be the final question I've just come up to my head um, can this match exist without The Undertaker? No Yeah. I, I don't think it can um, it's an excellent match concept I've actually found watching these matches that I enjoy it more than I thought I did and um, especially because the first one came at a time where I was absolutely sick and tired of the Undertaker character and this actually worked me back up to him. But to be honest, I, I think this stipulation does right to end with Undertaker's retirement, personally. Yeah, absolutely. And basically, yeah, that was uh, went a lot longer than uh, we than I uh, thought that we would get after Buried Alive match. But mm. I just want to say thanks, mate, for agreeing to uh, discuss my favourite match type um, in the uh, 20 plus years I've been a wrestling fan. Um, I've really enjoyed this discussion with you, mate. Oh, mate, th- thank you. You did an absolutely awesome job and it'll be an even better job once I've edited all my interruptions out of this mate but honestly uh, yeah you, you did brilliant mate thank you thank you mate and um, so where will we will be going next on one man's meet well danny um casting our minds back to about six months ago i'd had three very distinctive choices in mind for my next three topics we've covered two of them we've done the frontier wrestling alliance and we've done the NWO in WWE. Now, I'm going to tell you my third one, although it isn't going to be my choice for the next episode. So the third choice that I initially had was going to be the Matt Hardy and Edge feud from late 2005, early 2006. But I want to park it for now, mostly because I think... It's going to be another long one, and we know what happened the last time we had a long one to do. We took six months off, because that that was the only reason why we stopped doing main episodes of One Man's Meat, wasn't it? Um, But the main reason is that our next episode of this fine podcast is going to be officially episode 12 of our main show. And while we're now a couple of months past our one-year meet anniversary, I want to symbolically mark our first year, go by episodes, by taking a step back inspired by our debut episode. So, Daniel, we are long-standing jugglers. We are down with the clown till we're dead in the ground. 
So I want to finally return to the dark carnival, my friend, and watch the event that followed Legends and Icons 2011, which was our first episode, if you've missed it, Meatsiders. So I want to watch and then talk about with you the appropriately titled Bloody Mania 5. Oh, wow. Fantastic, mate. I was thinking to watch that uh, not too long ago, but... Yeah, that is brilliant. Um, now I've got an even better excuse to watch it. Yeah, that is a brilliant choice, mate. Yeah. Oh, mate, looking at the card for this, you've got every excuse to watch this. It's got all your favourites. We've got Rob Conway. We've got X-Pac. We've got Eugene. We've got Officer Colt Cabana. And, of course, we have got the leader of the goth Aces and Eights, Vampiro. You know... Oh. We have had an amazingly well put together legend show from Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope. I want to see what their main show was like personally. Yeah. Oh mate, let's do it. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about it now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, I wish. But in order to lay some truth out there for the meat siders, we've got a couple of episodes of Wrestling Society X to talk about. Um, but meat siders. We would love to know what you've got to talk about with us. So do please hit us up on the socials. You can reach us as a podcast at One Man's Meat Pod on Twitter. On a personal level, you can reach me at Real Chris Bellis on Twitter. I am all about the mutuals, so I will happily follow back and I will talk to you about anything. Um, Danny, where can the Meat Siders find you? You can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meat, which with the great Chris Bellis here. You can hear me on Nitro Nights with the great Sir Powell. And you can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. Excellent. And again, for, for those of you that don't know about Back When with the great Ty Peters, get to know because it is one of the best shows on sjp world media right now if not the best and i'm not just being biased because danny's a mate but this show completely speaks to me as a person that is a lot older than i look and they talk about all the things that i grew up enjoying so guys if you do anything within the next four weeks apart from prepare yourselves for some good old juggalo wrestling goodness do please subscribe and listen to every single episode of Back When because you will not be disappointed. Thank you, mate. And we've got to have you on at some point. Oh, mate, honestly, you sign me up. I mean, any excuse to speak to Ty, but also any excuse to uh, gush about the things I enjoyed in my youth, mate. Honestly, you can sign me up right now, mate. I am happy to do that. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we have had an amazing time talking about an underrated but no less awesome match type. You can definitely call me a fan. And we will be back next month to take your ninjas to Shangri-La. But in the meantime and in between time, stay beefy, Meat Cider.